This is an ABC podcast. On the ABC Listen app, your smart speaker, and on AM radio. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Across Australia in 2023, it was the deadliest year on the roads that we'd had since 2018. And in Victoria, 296 lives were lost in that 12-month period. That's the worst it's been in a decade and a half. My name's Nick Healy. I've been filling in for Rochelle this week. And today I'm asking, how do we reduce that road toll? Could we even see it get to zero? Now, I know some people will think that a zero road death sounds absolutely impossible. It's actually a commitment Australia has made. It's called Vision Zero. It's a principle that no one should be killed or seriously injured using our roads. Zero deaths and serious injuries by 2050. It's really ambitious. It's also over 25 years away. It's over a quarter of a century away. What can we do now to make that number, those lost lives, significantly lower for 2024? Today, I'm looking to explore everything from early driver education to the condition of our regional roads to how we change behaviours when it comes to people behind the wheel. So what about you? Now, I know in my part of the world, in the Goulburn Valley, I often have people say to me that they think drivers have become riskier, have become more dangerous on the roads. What's been your experience and what changes do you think are going to have the biggest effect when it comes to road safety? On the ABC Listen app, your smart speaker and on AM radio. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. No conversation around road deaths and road safety can start without the TAC. And the the Commission themselves have referred to last year's road toll as devastating. And they are pushing for significant change in 2024. Now, Samantha Cofield heads up road safety with the TAC. Samantha, good morning to you. Good morning, Nick. What happened last year? I don't think any one thing happened. Uh, A lot of things happened, but the saddest thing and the most tragic thing that happened was far more people died on our roads in 2023 than they did in 2022. And in fact, in most of the years before 2022, uh, it was the highest number we've seen uh, since 20, uh, or in 15 years, so, so in the, since the early 2000s. So, it was tragic. Uh, I think there's many reasons that we saw those numbers, but what's important in 2024 is that we all work together right across the community to make sure that we don't see those numbers repeated. That's what I was going to ask, Matthew. What does the TAC take from a year like 2023? What does it mean for strategy? Uh, well, for strategy, the starting point is um, a lot of analysis and making sure that we fully understand of those people who were killed, it wasn't in vain. We understand what happened in those crashes and how we might be able to prevent that in the future. And that's really where it's at now, is literally looking at every fatality and saying, how would we have prevented that fatality from happening? Do we have the initiatives, the actions right now to do that? Or can we plan for them in the future? And so that's that's the work we're doing right now. We have, uh, as you pointed out, a very ambitious strategy in Australia and, in fact, in, across the world that uh, we don't want anybody killed on our roads by 2050. 
but to get there, we need to do a lot of work right now. Samantha, I'll get you to hold on for a second. Glenda from Hawthorne's called in. Glenda, good morning to you. Hi there. Glenda, you say that you've seen people speeding a lot more. I cannot believe how many cars I see. I drive on the Western Highway a lot and also the Tullamarine Freeway and the Monash Freeway. And you just see these random cars just speeding really, really fast and ducking and weaving in between the lanes and literally cutting people off. It's like they're just driving recklessly. Um, but, I mean, it only takes just one inch that they miscalculate and they've, they've flipped the vehicle and you've got a disaster on your hand. And I see it every time I'm on these, these roads. Glenda, you sound like you feel less safe on the roads now when you're driving personally. Well, the thing is that you can't drive for yourself anymore. You've mm. always got to be driving for others. And the other thing that I think should be compulsory is that there should be dash cams in every single vehicle. I can't believe they've taken cigarette lighters out of the cars, but they haven't put in something like dash cams, which would be incredibly helpful in case of um, accidents. Yeah. Glenda, thanks so much for calling in. Graham from Callista's called as well. Graham, good morning. Yeah, hi there. Um, thanks for taking the call. Yeah, look, um, I think it's time, the sky stuff. I think it's just um, fanciful in the extreme. At the end of the day, you're dealing with human behaviours, and uh, unless you can change human behaviours, um, you know, then uh, you're not going to see any significant, significant change. You can tinker away at the, end to, at the edges with uh, better roads and better vehicles, safer, safer vehicles and things like that. But at the end of the day, you're dealing with human nature. You'll never change it. We're, we'll always... We will be the same in a thousand years' time in our human nature. So there you go. All right, Graham. Human nature, your concern there. And Rob in Melbourne. Rob, good morning to you. You're actually on the road now. Yeah, mate. I'm um, just heading south on the Hume in the truck. What have you seen um, on the roads from your perspective? Mate, I'll give you one example. I couldn't be here all day, but my just recently I was on the Tullamarine Freeway and I was getting off and you come to the fork where you've got to go right to go towards Geelong or left to go to Greensboro and the car in front decided to veer off to the right, no worries and then at the last minute they realised they made a mistake and then just shot straight across in front of me and when I had a look, the back seat looked like it was full of whatever and the driver could not see in the rear view out the back, so totally blind just come straight across, almost hit the front of the car and people just don't care Robert, I'll let I you get, Yeah, mate, I'll let you get back to driving. And, and look, thank you so much for calling in. Samantha, human behaviour, we can't alter it, says one caller. I mean, that is what we're hoping to do, though, isn't it? I think it is difficult to work with human behaviour, which is really asking for everybody who uses the road every day and every time they use the road to be perfect. One thing I would say, it, it's really important to know that while... Uh, poor behaviours, risky behaviours are part of the issue, that what we also do see playing out, particularly in fatalities, is simple mistakes. Uh, number of uh, intersection crashes this year where people who were uh, not fatigued, had no impairment, there was nothing that we could see that was high risk, but they pulled out from a, an intersection in front of a truck or another vehicle. Mm. And, uh, you know, these are people who've got very good driving records, etc. They made a mistake. So we, we can't 
uh, I suppose, look at it solely through the lens of behaviours. But I, what I would also say, just in relation to behaviour, when we look at police statistics, most people are doing the right thing every time they drive. It is a few people who are putting others at risk. And your first caller did talk about some sort of quite erratic sort of speeding type behaviour on highways. And one of the big issues we we do have, not so much on, on our highways uh, and the, the motorways, but, but some of our country roads is high speed. Um, we know that a lot of the crashes we've seen this year, particularly those where there were multiple people involved, happened on high-speed roads. And if a mistake is made, if the unexpected does happen on a high-speed road, as your caller pointed out, it, it takes very little for tragedy to happen. And so one of the uh, areas that we're really trying to work on is those high-speed roads, but we're particularly calling for people who are currently sort of travelling on country and outer urban roads that are not the big freeways, etc. Just slow down, take take into account your surroundings, the road conditions and other road users because it really doesn't take much when you're travelling at those speeds uh, for the tragedies to play out. It doesn't, and I know when you look at the numbers, we, we did see a lot more of, of these tragedies occurring on regional roads in the past 12 months. Yes, that's really uh, unfortunate. It was actually where we saw our uh, our biggest increase uh, was actually on our regional roads. Uh, I think we saw 174 people die on regional roads last year compared to 135 the year before, so quite a large increase. Um, many of them, as I said, on those country roads, usually are sort of secondary roads uh, that might be slightly narrow in terms of their pavement, usually won't have any separation between uh, vehicle lanes, maybe have a gravel shoulder or very little shoulder at all. And again, when we're travelling at high speeds, if something goes wrong, something unexpected happens, it, it is really very difficult to recover and very difficult at that speed for injury not to occur. Samantha, I really appreciate your time this morning. Samantha Cofield is the Head of Road Safety with the TAC. On the ABC Listen app, your smart speaker and on AM radio. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. And my name's Nick Healy. I've been filling in for Rochelle for the last little while. Today, we're talking about road deaths. Australia has a commitment, believe it or not, to zero deaths by 2050. Given how we saw last year go, one of the worst in Victoria that we've had in 15 years, it doesn't look like we're heading in that direction particularly quickly. What needs to change? Monash University's Accident Research Centre is one of the largest in the country when it comes to crash and injury prevention research. And the Associate Director there is Stuart Newstead. Stuart, good morning. Good morning, Nick. <clears throat> I'm seeing so many texts come through saying speeding, behaviour has changed since COVID, more people are doing riskier things on the roads. Has our driving behaviour changed? Definitely. We uh, actually completed a study looking at um, both exposure change and behaviour change during the uh, the pandemic years and it was quite clear that um, certainly during those periods of extensive lockdown, those people who continued to drive for whatever reason, their behaviour was quite different. The uh, the incidence of red light running, the incidence of speeding, the incidence of uh, drug and alcohol use actually uh, 
went up quite significantly. So although in those times often travel exposure was down by 60-70%, road trauma only dropped by sort of 20-30%. So you can see the compensation in uh, behaviour actually increased the risk on the road and didn't drive trauma down as much. And we suspect, and that's, some of these things are quite difficult to monitor continuously, but that behaviour has endured as we have returned to, uh, to sort of normal life after the pandemic as well, which has actually fundamentally changed the risk profile that we see on the road, which is what many of the comments have been talking about. Where do we begin to change driver behaviour? Well, um, obviously having a, a comprehensive enforcement strategy is is really important. Um, and so having having road policing that is really targeting the problem areas is important. And obviously um, having sufficient resources to do that within road policing is, is really important as well. Um, obviously you can tell people what they should be doing to get blue in the face, but often the only way to materially change their behaviour back to normality is uh, is to have that threat of, uh, of penalty hanging over them. And it's I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, but ultimately that's uh, that's one of the key drivers for behavioural problems. But that, ultimately, that, sorry, Stuart, just quickly, that that penalty is there now. Like we do have that threat. You know, we've even got cameras that can tell if you're not paying attention, if you're on your phone. Like we know that we're being monitored when we drive, and it doesn't seem to have changed much. Well. There was there was subtle changes during the pandemic and uh, things mm. are normalising because there's a lot of pressure on police resources, obviously, through the pandemic to be doing other things. And uh, it, it doesn't take long for a sort of change in enforcement to change people's behaviour uh, quite significantly. And then it takes quite a while to actually renormalise that behaviour again. And I think that's potentially what we've been seeing because even already this year we're seeing perhaps things have settled down a bit compared to what they were last year so perhaps it's taking a very long time to normalize after that significant disruption i had a text in which is fascinating me um it says the first thing we need to understand is that a certain number of deaths and injuries is the price society has decided it is willing to pay for getting places quickly i don't expect that to change surely that is not where we genuinely think we are as a society well, you'd hope not because um, most people say that if they're uh, disconnected from the uh, personal experience, but if you're experiencing road trauma personally, either your, your friends, family or yourself, then that attitude changes quite quickly. So most people would say it's actually unacceptable to have uh, lives lost and that level of injury on the road. And there are things we know we can do about that to uh, to compensate it. So there needs to be a continued focus to, to make sure we're making gains. And when we go backwards, it is actually very disappointing and it needs to change the, uh, the the focus to what maybe the new problem is. Quite a few texts saying speed limits could change and that would fix things right now. Is that true? That is absolutely a, a very good comment. And this is, I mean, Samantha pre- talked about our urban roads and rural roads. What we know is there's a fundamental mismatch between the standard of those roads and speed limit setting. We did a study a couple of years ago looking at outer urban roads particularly, and uh, we find that development um, comes along and it takes a long time for the system to be adapted for the sort of uh, travel exposure and uh, conflicts that have been caused by that development in the outer areas. So we need to be much quicker at um, looking at either upgrading the standard of the road to create better safety when that exposure increases for outer urban development 
or lowering the speed limit to compensate as well and possibly a combination of the two. So that is a way to get uh, rapid benefit and uh, to match what the infrastructure offers in terms of safety against uh, the idea that when people do make a mistake, you don't want them to be killed. And yet this is where I feel like we've got some disconnect. If you told most drivers that speed limits were going to drop by 30, 40 kilometres per hour right now and it was going to save lives... I think you'd still get a lot of anger because I know that speed limit reductions can be, well, they can get people pretty fired up. They certainly can. And um, often the best way to do it is is sort of gradual approach to reduction so people get used to the concept. When we first went to a 50 kilometre an hour uh, urban default speed limit, there was absolute uproar about that. But now we accept it as as the norm. And in fact, the um, studies on travel time showed it made barely 10 seconds difference to most trips because there's lots of other things that govern uh, travel times in particularly urban areas. Regional areas are a different matter. So when we're talking about balancing safety and mobility in a regional area, Mm. we need to identify key routes that are channeling most of the traffic and we need to concentrate on upgrading those to the highest possible uh, level of safety so people can maintain that mobility and have access to, um, to, to safe mobility as well. But we've also got a note that those minor roads where there's less traffic uh, we need to discourage people from using it and we need to uh, putting the speed limit down uh, on those roads to compensate for the fact that they're probably not going to be upgraded in a hurry but you need a combination of infrastructure investment and speed limit setting to uh, balance that safety and mobility argument. Kerry's texted in saying why is the road toll never mentioned as a percentage of the total number of drivers with a licence. Surely without the context, it's just a number. Do we need to contextualise? Or, I mean, we are talking about deaths. Is is that not enough to stand by itself? It certainly needs to acknowledge, and it's not just the number of licensed drivers, it's actually the total travel exposure because individuals' travel exposure can vary quite significantly over time. And so um, acknowledging that travel exposure is a driver of the final outcome uh, is important because... And people forget that when you've got a very strongly growing population and growing travel exposure, even maintaining the line means you have to be reducing risk across the network and it's important to do that. So it actually puts the pressure on uh, governments in setting policy to um, provide a much safer or increasingly uh, risk-reduced network to compensate for that increased exposure. Otherwise, the the natural trend is for the um, road trauma to go up. But, yet, but again, when we could accept that, but it's not acceptable to keep killing more and more people as more and more people drive on the road. Um, we need to be uh, having an integrated policy. And it's like that in all areas of public health too. You have more exposure, you need to put in better programs to protect the population. Stuart, I know this conversation comes up quite a lot when we look at road deaths. Many people will say we need to stop saying the word accident. We need to talk about a crash. You wouldn't talk about a plane accident or a train accident. You talk about a crash. Somehow on the roads we we act like there may be a situation where no one had any responsibility. What's your takeaway from those conversations? Well, I guess the word accident comes from the fact that no one generally usually means to kill himself on the road. Um, I think crash is a better word because it actually it has a connotation of looking at how the system is performed and where the system failure has happened, or whether that be inappropriate infrastructure, inappropriate speed, or someone making a, a genuine error, or in fact, ultimately um, ignoring the road rules as well. We need to understand how that system failure works 
and uh, be able to address that systematically. So calling it a crash and looking at it as a system issue is a much more productive way to address road safety than just saying oh, it was an accident because that implies the inevitable almost. <clears throat> Stuart, thank you so much. Stuart's the Associate Director at the Monash University Accident Research Centre. On the line, Ashley in, uh, where are you, Ashley? Heidelberg. Ashley, good morning. Uh, yes, good morning. I just don't think there's enough statistics there for people who are actually affected by drugs and alcohol. Right. So you think we need to be looking closer at that sort of behaviour? Definitely. Uh, and I think we should be also vigilant when it comes to these people on the road that, you know, we need more police on the road. I think a lot of these people think they can just drive when they're under the influence and get away with it because there's not enough police on the road to actually catch them. No, actually, unfortunately, your line's breaking up quite badly. But, yeah, I, it's something that Stuart was just talking about then is that we need that enforcement level as well. We need to know that police are out there if we are asking people's behaviour to change and we are doing that by making it a punishment level. If we're saying to people, if you speed, you will be caught, we need to know that there is that, I, I guess, result from that behaviour. Mohammed's in Essendon. Good morning. Good morning, Um Hi there. I'm I'm a GP in the community and I've worked in different states across the, the country. And I just had two comments or two questions to make. Uh, one is the issue of uh, which other listeners have made about enforcement. Uh, my, I guess, anecdotal view is that there's le- far less enforce- police enforcement of uh, um, drivers who break the law or are doing unsafe things on the road in Victoria compared to other states i see people driving at night with broken headlights uh your earlier um uh, listener commented about uh a car that was full and a driver was unable to see through the rear uh to the rear view mirror mm. there's a lot more of that just visible on the roads without enforcement um so that's one aspect the other aspect is with an aging population i i deal with a lot more uh elderly pay, uh, pay, uh people who are drivers and reaction times and medical issues are uh, uh, increasingly prevalent and uh, chronic disease is increasingly prevalent. And um, I find that between states and the country, there's a variation of laws on reporting uh, medical issues and impairments to the driving authorities. And in Victoria, it seems to be a voluntary uh, reporting and there's no mandatory assessments of uh, the aging driver with increasing impairments. Um, it seems to be almost a um, individual judgment call on when these reports are made to Vic Roads. Um, so I'm curious about the the data or the analysis of these increased accidents and fatalities, how much of them were impaired drivers um, and whether that system needs to change. Mohammed, would you would you say that you would put some caps on age and licences? Do you do you have an idea of what you'd like to see from a, from your perspective as a GP in a community? Not necessarily caps. Definitely not because at, at 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 a numerical age you have people of varying capacities. You have fifty year olds who may be uh, highly impaired and you might have a 75 year old who is an excellent driver so i don't think a simple age cap is the is the answer but um, in other states there seems to be an age uh, cap at which you have to go through mandatory driving assessments every couple of years in uh, say in in new south wales where it used to work 
Um, so that doesn't exist in Victoria. Uh, maybe for good reason, maybe for bad reason. I just don't know the data behind it from the TAC's point of view, whether there there is a benefit to having mandatory assessments after a certain age group, um, or perhaps the road toll data does not reflect that the accidents are due to impaired drivers. And then in that case, doing something like that may not be necessary or not the best use of uh, resources. Mohammed, thanks for getting in touch. I really appreciate it. A couple of texts coming through. Dorothy saying, our cars, Nick, they're just not designed to drive slowly in urban areas. Reducing the speed limit to 40 is mind-bogglingly frustrating and causes more issues. If planning had included more public transport infrastructure, maybe the problem would not be so bad. And Paul saying, Nick, we need more television ads about basic road safety and rules. As simple as indicators must be used to indicate what you will be doing, not just what you are doing. And Paul also saying the speed limit is the fastest legal speed, not the recommended speed or the safest speed. I'd love to hear from him this morning. What can we do right now to change the road toll, to come back from a year where we had just too many deaths on the road, uh, more than we've seen in 15 years, to a 2024 where that number is vastly reduced? I'm interested in knowing what we need to do in terms of education because more than a couple of people have got in touch saying that maybe younger drivers can be a problem. Now, Ryder is a road safety and education workshop. John Elliott is the head of program delivery. John, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Talk to me about how you deliver that education. Where do you go into it and, and what sort of age group are you talking to? Yeah, so we the writer program is targeted at senior high school students and that's students that are either at the point of getting their learner's permit or really importantly being the passengers of young and novice drivers as well. And uh, by teaching them in whole groups, so we sort of we get a whole year cohort together, we then break them up into smaller groups so it can be interactive. But by learning together, um, you know, school creates this sort of fleeting opportunity where they're all together with their peers. They're going to create a culture where they sort of have um, group, you know, normative behaviour that should be positive on the road. And the the program, which runs throughout the country, it's the largest um, program of its kind in in Australia and in New Zealand. Mm. Um, and what it does is gets students thinking and, and prepared with actual sort of strategies and techniques to make better decisions on the road. Because you don't just need to terrify kids. We don't show graphics or anything like that because, you know, people understand negative consequences of of road fatalities. They don't need us telling them that it would be bad if you crash your car, your parents would miss you, all of that sort of stuff. Most people get that. What they need are the tools and techniques to be able to say, if you're a passenger in a car, how do I help tell the driver to change what they're doing because I don't feel comfortable? What techniques can I employ to do that? Because young brains are still formulating. They're still, their frontal context hasn't finished developing. So they tend to rely, in a, in a stressful situation, they rely on emotions. And what you need to do is have practice behaviour that sort of informs the, those responses. So it's not a purely emotional response when they're in, when they're feeling perhaps like they're in danger in a car and that sort of thing. So we do that. We and we, we we demonstrate the the crucial impact between just a small increase in speed and the extra stopping distance that um, that creates. So to to people's comments, um, 
uh, you know, oh, slowing down to 40 is too much. Um, the, the massive difference, even just doing sort of 60 in a 50 zone, what that does to, you know, your stopping distance and then what that could potentially do to um, to a pedestrian. Because where do we have these um, lower speed limits? It's where we have other vulnerable road users on the road. Um, so, so to demonstrate that um, helps people understand that that sort of you know casual speeding that people sometimes refer to as just a couple of kilometres over can have real real um, consequences in being able to avoid a crash later on if they're ever unfortunate enough to be in that position. John, I'm really curious. Also, I was just going to say quickly. Yeah. I'm, I'm very curious about the fact that you kind of take your education from almost an a, an attitudinal point of view more it, than just sitting down is. and saying, "Here's yeah. the rules and regulations." Yeah, no, no, because they, they get all because students. I mean, people say, "Oh, young people now they don't they're not as good as they used to be." They actually have a far greater. They've got to do more hours than people of my generation ever had to do to get their their um their their provisional license and you can see this in overall statistics while young people are still very much uh, overrepresented as as a percentage of of all fatalities you know they make up less than 13% of the population but um in victoria for instance last year they made up 19% of all road fatalities so they are overrepresented mm. but that has come down um 20 years ago they made up 28% of fatalities so that over that level of overrepresentation isn't um, is is falling, um, which is a, which is a positive sign um, uh, for that. Um, you know, and and so we don't teach we don't teach them about the road rules as such because there are other avenues for that. What we're teaching um, students and giving them techniques and um, tools for is is exactly that. It's it's be, um, becoming better road citizens. And, and making better decisions based on that sort of attitudinal approach. And by doing it while they're sort of still in those formative years, doing it to, you know, if you're trying to get 30-year-olds, they've already created their, their habits and their behavioural patterns um, by getting people before they're sort of driving solo. Um, you're able to impact those decisions um, uh, before they've become habits. John, I might just get a hold for a line because on mm. this topic we've got Paula from Bendigo calling in. And Paula, you, you think there is a genuine sort of behavioural issue when it comes to roads. Yes, I think it's a reflection of the broader society trend where everything's about me, me, me and there's no, there's lots of of courtesy and politeness, you know, letting other people in and those kind of things. And everyone's rushing because of their priorities and not thinking about what other road users, you know, need you to do. And Paula, do you think that's across the board with all road users? Do you think that's a particular subset of road users? Oh, look, I'm a little bit old fashioned. I think it's a, <laughs> a young, I think it's a younger trend, but then I'm old. So, you know. <laughs> No, but it sounds like you these days, and, and it's a big theme that we're getting from people is you don't necessarily feel as safe on the roads as you would want to. No, and I notice that people are more inclined to cut in and, and you know, force you into dangerous situations because they want to get from here to there rather than being courteous. Yeah, Paula, I'm really glad you called in and thank you. And, and John, I mean, you know, you, that beautiful term you used before, citizens of the road, it's not just younger people who can be learning that. 
Absolutely. And when, when we, we actually surveyed um, learner drivers last year, and one of the things we found was that 86% had experienced bullying while they were on the roads from mm. older drivers and from other drivers, not just older, but other existing road users. And that's the, the to, to that earlier caller's point. Um, if we're trying to, you know, establish courteous drivers on the road, the best thing we can do is also be super courteous to those who are still learning to drive on the road and, and give them the respect and, and remember what it was like when we were a, a learner driver and go, you know what, I really didn't like it when I felt pressured to go faster than I was comfortable or I didn't feel, I didn't like it when people um, overtook me aggressively or, or even, you know, yelled out the window and um, did all that sort of thing. We need to sort of make sure that learning is a positive experience and that those also form the um, the behavioural patterns that they'll, they'll then replicate as they're driving solo as well. Jeff's actually on the road now. Jeff, you would agree with that. You, you do think there's, a, on the roads, we're seeing an extension of, of, of I guess, a change of behaviour on a societal level. I do agree with Paula quite well. I'm 62, just to give the facts, but I'm professional driving heavy vehicles for 20 plus years now. And our culture is not of courtesy, respect or everything. Uh, road rage has increased because our society is in the same behaviour. The other thing I would add is that I do not believe um, you're doing anything good for our societies, particularly on the roads, regards to political correctness. Get the demographics on accidents and release them and put your energies there. Because when you get to see it, who stuffs up, who does the stupid things around trucks on a daily, if not hourly basis. So you'd want to see us actually taking that demographic by demographic and then targeting those changes. Jeff, that's really interesting to me. Yes. And sh oh, sorry, just before you go on, John, I've got Shanika in Wollongong as well. And uh, Shanika, it's interesting that you're calling from Wollongong. That's sort of where I was uh, getting my L plates way back in the day. Um, I, I've got to admit, I think I was probably doing some risky behaviour back then. It was the early 90s. I think there was a, a bit less of a focus on what we should be doing right and wrong. Um, you you feel better about yourself when you follow the rules yeah look i'm so close to losing my license i've got two points left i think uh i've just been i don't know wild all my life and when i follow the speed limit when i do the right thing it just calms me down i'm just uh i'm a happier different person i wish i knew this 20 years ago <laughs> what are you getting pinged for on the roads in wollongong are you speeding I had, no, I had a, using my phone, one double demerit, <sighs> uh, but I wasn't using my phone, I was using my maps, but st same thing, um, and I did have a low range uh, DUI a couple of years ago, and uh, a big mistake, so, yeah, I won't do that again, um, but mm. I just, yeah, it's just, it's just on the road, you just follow the rules, just have integrity, it just about keeps you calm. Yeah, Shanika, I appreciate you being honest about that. I don't think many people would be willing to, to call up and talk so openly about that. And John, just before I let you go, you know, talking about driver distraction, mobile phones, that's a big change we've seen and something that really needs to be a huge part of education still. Yes, driver distractions, it's main, the two main ones, of course, are phone use and um, you know other passengers because you get, you get a lot of young people in a car and that does 
traditionally have a uh, a negative impact on um on decision making which leads to more likelihood of being involved in crashes but i would just like to to double back to one other point about um behavior a big part of behavior is linked to emotions and one of the things that we get get students thinking about is their emotional state before they drive a car and to sort of you know we get we we know when you get into a car you check the mirrors you check your seat belts mm. you do all that sort of stuff what we need people to do is also check their emotional state if they're really stressed about running late for something you know we, we there are tools you can use. Call ahead before you start driving, you know, so you're not breaking the law. Call, call ahead and say, I'm going to be running late. That takes the pressure off so you don't then stress out and are tempted to speed. You know, if, you're, if you've just had an argument with your family members or something, you're in a bad mood, take the time out to, to not be driving when you're angry because we know that those sorts of emotional states uh, can have an impact on decision-making as well. John um, Elliott, we're going to leave it there, but thank you so very much. John's the head of program delivery at Ryder, looking at those younger drivers and educating them on their way through. And when I talk about accidents and road deaths when I'm, I'm back in Shepparton, where I live, back in the Goulburn Valley, invariably the topic of the road conditions comes out. If you live out of the city, if you've been driving on a regional rural road, you know, the quality is pretty bad. Many people texting in to say, we need to talk about this. The repairs, bluntly, haven't been forthcoming in nearly enough areas. Now, Marianne Brown is a councillor with the Southern Grampian Shire, also chairs the rural councils of Victoria. And Marianne, it's always great to catch up. How are you this morning? Great to talk to you, Nick. What are the roads like in your part of the state? Um, look, uh, probably the uh, region, the ones that are state managed, uh, like the Glenelg Highway, um, Hamilton Highway, are I- I- in quite poor condition in places. Um, I drive those roads regularly, and you know, in, in certain parts you're avoiding potholes, which means you're probably veering to the right hand side of the road. Um, and I think, you know, from the, what we hear, that is the case of, of, across a large part of the state. I think the other challenge is that even the roads that local councils manage, rural councils are responsible for over 100,000 kilometres of roads across the state and many of them um, are some of the poorer councils in in the state. And uh, look, Nick, in November last year, the Grattan Institute released a a report potholes in pitfalls and Mm. it really identified um, that there needed to be significantly more money spent on the maintenance of roads um, and, and that was a national report but it, it replicates what's what is the situation in much of um, rural and regional Victoria. And Marion, you touched on it but I think you know when you try and untangle who's responsible for a road from federal to state to council it, it yes. can be baffling sometimes and as you say there's a lot of pressure on councils with the amount of roads that are under their responsibility. That that's the case, and and look, you know what what we saw last year in terms of the fatalities on roads, disproportionately more of those occurred in rural and regional areas. So I think it was over sixty percent of those fatalities, and and it's you know there's there's an awful cost to this. There's obviously the cost for those the families of those uh, victims, but there are the um, first responders who go and attend to mm-hmm. those accidents. You know, the ripple effect of these events and one of the other aspects, which is not as serious, but 
a lot of um, people who live in the, you know, the metropolitan and regional cities, they travel to rural Victoria in their holidays. Now, the road, the conditions of roads is actually a deterrent. Um, and I've had people who visited me and say, God, that highway is awful. Um, you know, this is people who, you know, live in Melbourne or on the Mornington Peninsula. Um, and, and so there's also an economic impact because of this is, you know, it, it's, it's discouraging for people to visit our communities and we want them to come. Yeah, of course you want them to come and you want them to come and be safe as well. Right. Is there movement on this? You know, people are saying, you know, so many texts yeah. coming in. I've got one here saying, look, road conditions are just worst month by month. The road to Mount Buller from Yarra Glen feels like a death trap at the moment. Yeah. Is there movement on this when you talk to either federal or state counterparts? Um, look, I think there's an appreciation of the issues. Um, the federal government did announce additional funding, um, which was targeted at regional and rural roads earlier um, in the middle middle of last year. But the, what the Grattan Institute report identified, we need significantly more investment and over a long period of time. I think the other issue, Nick, and you would be seeing it in your part of the state, many of our roads have been damaged by the weather conditions mm-hmm. that we've seen. And what we need to be looking at is, and Victoria, I think, is dragging the chain a bit in this, is actually building and repairing those roads so they are more resilient. So we know we're going to get more of these events so that we're not looking at every time we get some flash flooding or really heavy downpours, the roads damage. We need to build them better so that next time that happens, it's not going to cost as much or, in fact, no no repairs are needed. So this is about betterment, building back better. Marianne Brown, again, thank you. It's great to catch up. Marianne is the Chair of the Rural Councils of Victoria, also a councillor at the Southern Grampian Shire Council. On the line, I've got Joel in Wangaratta. Joel, good morning. G'day, Nick. How are you? I'm good. you wondering if maybe people could just be less on the roads? Yeah, look, I wanted to loop back to what Stuart Newstead said about exposure. Um, just make sure people are thinking about how much time they're spending driving. Um, I saw some data late last year that the, the total kilometres travelled across Australia is trending up significantly since the pandemic. And I think that's a really um, important cause of the increasing crashes that people need to be aware of. Would you say that people could, oh, I don't know, take different forms of transport? Where would you want to see that reduction kind of taking place? Look, um, I think I'm a realist. I've grown up and lived in regional Victoria. I know, I know um, how important private cars are to get people to work and, and services and other things, but I'd encourage people to think about the importance of unnecessary trips, I guess, social trips or recreation trips, um, driving a couple of hours to go to the beach. Maybe you could visit the local swimming hole. Um, and one way to do that that I've tried to put in into play in my own family is setting a budget of kilometres. Wow! Think about think about not just um, not just the financial side of driving, which which again I think is also overlooked. But set a number of k's, a target each month, fifteen hundred, twelve hundred, um, and and see how you go against that. So at least you're thinking um, each time you think about jumping in the car, whether you really need to make those trips. Joel, that's actually fascinating, and thank you. I really appreciate you getting in touch on that. A kilometre budget to reduce driving time. Text in, I'm a current member of Victoria Police, although I'm not out on the road these days. I try and do an operational shift from time to time. 
the number of times I've been told to go and catch the real crooks after issuing a penalty notice to a distracted or a speeding driver is amazing. This behaviour kills and seriously injures people. If you had to choose, would you rather have police like me stop the behaviour or have some personal item stolen from your home? I know what I would be choosing. I want to get back to this idea I started with, Vision Zero, a a commitment to zero road deaths in 2020, sorry, 2050. The viability of that goal is something that Malad Hagani has recently explored. Malad is Senior Lecturer of Urban Mobility, Public Safety and Disaster Risk at the Uni of New South Wales. And a good morning to you. Yes, good morning to you. 2050, zero deaths. Is that possible? Well, um, I don't want to give you the short answer first, but if I may take you... Uh, through the data of uh, road fatalities in Australia since 1925. Please. I think that would give us a better perspective. Okay. If you look at the, the data of road deaths since 1925, you would see a upward trend from uh, 1925 up until 1980s. And we're talking about a slight increase in the number of years recently, but back then the numbers were going up persistently every year. It was only around early 1980s that we managed to plateau this increasing trend and put it on a downward trajectory. I actually did a quick estimate today of the number of lives that we have saved on the road uh, through the policies and measures and vehicular safety measures that we have implemented since 1980s in Australia. And the numbers are telling me that over the years, since 1980 to 2023, we have probably saved something in between of 138,000 or 197,000 lives on the road. These are the excess number of deaths that we would have probably uh, seen on our roads had none of those measures and policies been implemented. So we have had a good journey. We have started behind the uh, United States, for example, in terms of road safety outcomes in 1980s, and we are far ahead of the United States uh, in the global ranking uh, in terms of death per capita at the moment. So, so, the so is, why yeah. isn't the toll continuing to go down if we've been doing such a good job? Yes, yes. The thing is that once you implement uh, various um, improvement schemes in a system, uh, there is an economic principle called the law of diminishing returns, meaning that uh, the more improvement uh, you have in the system, the, f- the harder it gets to make further improvements. Once we have policies around, uh, for example, drink driving and, uh, and phone use and seat belts, for example, and once they uh, we reach a, a good level of compliance for those policies, for example, once we have good safety, um, vehicular safety um, you know, features in our cars and, uh, and those kinds of measures, we kind of run out of options to make further improvements. So you would expect to observe a certain pattern of plateauing after mm. some point, and this is what we have been observing over the last year. I was curious to know whether, uh, whether this is related only to Australia, so I ran the data for uh, other high-income countries, and they are also plateauing too. However, plateauing doesn't mean that we need to get it is justified uh, to regress and go back. And that is worrying for us, that we are seeing that over the last three years, uh, we have had three consecutive years of increase. This is what we haven't had in the past. So back to my question, can we get over that plateau? Can we take that down? Can, can we actually achieve zero road deaths, zero serious accidents by 2050? The answer would be that the current data doesn't show that we can reach zero deaths. 
but that should not be a necessarily disappointing outcome for us. I believe that the founders of the Vision uh, Zero, it originated from Sweden, they probably meant it as a more as more of a moral philosophy guiding our uh, road policy. Um, we should aim for getting these trends back on a downward trajectory and try to get as close as possible to zero. But whether or not a country as uh, with, a, with a population as big as Australia can reach absolute zero, this does not seem to be uh, in the near sight, for example. No, Malad, I really appreciate you taking that time. Um, your article was fascinating to me, taking a look at what we would need to do. And uh, Malad Hagani is, uh, well, he's the Senior Lecturer of Urban Mobility and Public Safety and Disaster Risk at the Uni of New South Wales. Philip, I want to address your text. Philip says, here's an easy solution. Get over it. Accept that driving on the road carries some risk. If you want to reduce your exposure to that risk, drive less. I've ridden motorbikes day in, day out for over 50 years. We've all lost friends and family, but life goes on. Philip, I don't know if we should just get over it. I think there is still, as we've heard, a lot more that we can do to keep people safe on the roads. Malad might say that, yes, we're probably never going to get to zero deaths, but that doesn't mean we can't significantly reduce that number from last year. All I would say is I I talk to a lot of families, I talk to a lot of first responders, and one death isn't just one death. It is many, many lives and communities impacted by that loss, and that loss echoes around and creates some serious trauma, and I would like to see significantly less of that. I want to thank you to everyone who called in and texted in on this. Rochelle is back on Monday, and, and tomorrow the Conversation Hour is going to bring you a Redux episode. It's going to delve into the role that pubs play in regional communities. And it's been an important role for a long time. You don't drive through a regional community without knowing where that local pub is, knowing that so much fundraising and so much community events can happen there, but also you feel it when a pub has been lost from a community. Thank you for your time this week. Enjoy your time.